Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Okay, so we're in Genesis 6 tonight. Um, as quick review, especially for, for Jackson, Genesis 1, we have God wanting to bring order out of chaos. That's the purpose of it all. Genesis 2, we got Sabbath, and then humans are created. That's God's ideal. They live in the garden. They prance about, probably sing songs to each other. It's a good life. Then in Genesis 3, it's the fall, and we see that what God intended for humanity gets broken and cursed. And then in Genesis 4, the curse even goes to the descendants of Adam and Eve, and Cain and Abel fall short too. And then Genesis 5, we see Seth's line from Noah to Shem all the way through. So we see two genealogies, Cain's genealogy and Seth's genealogy. Um, and then we come up to six and we see what's going on with Seth's line. Uh, the rest of the world in the meantime, after the sin, falls into this weird nastiness. So I told you last week, chapter six is probably one of the weirdest chapters in the Bible. So tonight we're talking about fallen angels, giants, an ark and a flood over the world, which are probably three of the top things that when somebody says, I don't believe in the Bible, I just can't believe in the Bible, they'll go after one of these things and say, these are the things I struggle with and I just can't be a believer because of these massive things. So we'll dig into it, but I wanted to lead off tonight because we're getting into weirdness. Um, and it's God's weirdness, right? God put it in his word for a reason. So I, I come at it from that kind of approach. But 1 Peter 3.15 says... Um, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. And as I go through these, that was the verse that just came back to my head. My point isn't to prove that there were giants on the earth tonight, but I want to be ready to give a defense to somebody that says that's an issue for me and that blocks me from coming into a relationship with the Lord. Um, so part of what I'm going to share isn't what I think would be a compelling, like, research project on giants around the planet. But I am going to say, this is what I've found out that satisfies me. Like for, this is the defense I would have that explains why I can still have hope in Jesus Christ. And if that's a gift to you and, and it helps you talk with somebody that really struggles with these things, that's wonderful. So we'll start in verse one of chapter six. Now it came to pass when the men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Chapter five makes it very clear that Adam has sons. So the sons of God are a different population. In fact, it's a really tricky thing. And there's different people that believe different things about who the sons of God were. Um, some people think that the sons of God were the sons of Seth. And then the sons of Satan were the sons of Cain. Cause we just got done with two genealogies. Um, and then it would be kind of like 
you'd have ungodly people from Cain's line marrying godly people from Seth's line. The problem with that is even in Seth's line, everybody dies. Remember chapter five? They all die, except for Enoch. Um, the other kind of issue with that is that there were plenty of ungodly people that came from Seth too. And there were other lines because Adam and Eve had lots of sons and daughters. So the second thing is the sons of God could maybe be a distinction between royalty and commoners. Like, but we don't have kingdoms yet, so that's a difficult one. However, people that do that one often cite Deuteronomy 7 or 2 Corinthians 6 that says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has the righteousness with the unrighteous and what communion has light with darkness. Um, the problem with that line of thinking, and I'll go to a third one here, is usually that gets put to the side because it isn't really a big reason why God would wipe out the whole planet. And we have people marrying ungodly and godly mixes now, and God's not wiping out the whole planet right now. So we have that all over the place. The third option, then, is the most plausible. The, the, the Bible is actually using the term son of God, which is bene Elohim. And Elohim here is not, it is the plural masculine. So the sons of God is used three times in the Old Testament. They're all in Job. And in every single one, there's a, they're clearly referencing angels and demons. So there's this human race that was created, but there's also this race of beings uh, that would be different. In fact, if you look at the Septuagint, which is the version of the Old Testament that Jesus would have read, the Septuagint didn't translate this sons of God. They actually translated it sons of angels. So there's this group of people on the earth that were being born because angels were coming and mating with human women. Um, Jude 6 and 7 both talk about wicked angels that um, are given over to sexual immorality and strange flesh. Jude also says those angels are in, in chains until the judgment day today. So they were bound up at some point. Jesus says obedient angels don't marry or are given in marriage. Remember when he says that? In heaven, the angels don't marry and they're not given in marriage. But he doesn't say that they don't have gender. And he doesn't say they don't have the capacity to do it. He just says the obedient ones don't go there. Uh, the other part of the physicality of angels, and we'll get to this later in the Old Testament, is that Abraham actually has angels that visit him, and remember they eat together, which if they were ghost-like glowing spirits like we see in the movies, that they couldn't eat food. But apparently they eat food, and they are physical and that sort of thing. And there's many instances through the Old Testament where they claim that they would walk and talk on the earth. When Je in Genesis 3.15, when they promise a savior from the seed of women, remember we're still looking for that, which creates a real problem if the angels are mating with the humans. Because now we don't have these clear genetic lines and we see, we'll see a few indications that that's part of what the issue is and why God then would want to start with just Noah's line because theoretically all these other lines are getting so intermixed and intermarried that we're losing the the possibility of a seed that will conquer Satan if all the human races are being mixed up. Jesus, of course, was half God and half human as he was the seed that came from Mary. And theologically, we kind of believe now that he was fully human and he was fully God. So if you have children of angels and they're half fully human, then are they also then half demon or half angel? And if so, this is, gets to be really fun scientific thing, or science fiction thinking. Like you can imagine what some of these things would look like. Verse three, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. 
Um, here we have God having limits. There's a boundary to what God's willing to tolerate. He won't strive with man forever, but he will strive with man for a while, which is an act of grace. But there's a limit to how long God will tolerate rebellious people. And that limit seems to be 120 years. Striving here is the word deen or dain, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, it means to rule or to judge as an umpire would. So to be a like a legal judge. So when it says, my spirit shall not strive, you could translate that, my spirit would not legally judge mankind forever. There's going to be an end to this contention that goes on. How long he'll limit, he doesn't say. It just says not forever. So we know the, the distance of time is something shy of forever. And then for indeed, for he is indeed flesh, that's actually, in our Bible, it's translated flesh. But in the Hebrew, it's actually two words, basar and shagag. And basar means bodily flesh or like kind of crudely fat. So it's the, it's the bad flesh that we have on our bodies, the wasted flesh. And shagag is to means astray in terms of sin, so something that's gone away. So flesh would be fatty, useless flesh that's gone the way of sin, which is pretty much my belly and gluttony. Um, but God's saying, you know, these, they are just humans and they don't need to be around forever. So if demons are, in fact, then creating new kinds of human beings that aren't part of God's plan, that starts to justify why he might have to destroy the world. Uh, on the Vox, there's a, a writer, Resnick, that talks about this idea of 120 years, and this is a secular journal. But they're finding out that as they look at aging around the world, that there are very few people that get to be that old on the planet. In fact... In recorded history, there's only one person who's ever got to be older than 120 years old. And oddly enough, we're not talking about a man, we're talking about a woman that got to be 122 years old. Her name's Jean Calmet. And just for fun, uh, well, and this is the other part, Resnick says, your chances of, of getting there, 120, are very slim. In fact, the human race is not likely to break the record ever. There's gains in longevity, but after 100, there are much more modest gains, and the gains drop to near zero when you get towards 110 years old. In other words, as healthy as we've gotten as a society, we've not extended average lifespan in the hundred, post-100 years much or if at all. So here's Jean Kelmet, 120 or two years old. She was a chain smoker, or a lifetime smoker, which I think is kind of funny, but here's her daily routine, 6.45 a.m., she starts the day with a long prayer at her window, thanking God for being alive and for the beautiful day which was starting, sometimes loudly asking the reason why she had to live so long and why she's the only one in her family left alive. Seated on her armchair, she would do gymnastics wearing her stereo headset. Her exercises included flexing and extending her arms because a distinguished woman must have beautiful hands. Then the legs and then... Her carers noted that she would move faster than the other residents that were 30 years younger than her, despite her being blind. Her, <laughs> her breakfast consisting of coffee and milk, milk with rusks. And in the afternoon, she would take a nap for two hours in her armchair. First of all, I think naps are part of how you live to be alive. I think there's nothing wrong with an afternoon nap. And then she would visit her neighbors in the care home, telling them about the latest news that she had heard on the radio. At nightfall, she would dine quickly, returned to her room, listened to music. Her eyesight was still too poor for her favorite pastime of crossword puzzles. 
and then she would smoke her last cigarette of the day and go to bed at 10 p.m. This is the daily routine of the longest living person on record. Um, if you look at men, nobody's made it past 120 in our recollection. The only record of any man living past 120 is, in, is, is what we just got done reading last week. So uh, if you look at the top 100 oldest people that we have on record, they're almost all the United States, Japan, and Italy. So clearly there's places in the world that are better for long lifespans than others. Uh, the most recent addition to this top 100 was in 2017. We had our first Israeli, Yisrael Kristal, that lived to be 113 years old. Um, and the, current, current, the oldest living person right now is 116 years old, and he's Hiroman Kumura. Right. So anyways, I thought this was kind of fun. So there are people that are old. I think it's fascinating that we don't live older than 120. As a general rule, we just don't. And if there's only one exception in the past however many years, I think that's an interesting kind of thing. Our bodies just wear out at that age. So if you're looking at that kind of lifespan, you, we're still kids. We're just juniors. We've got a lot of life ahead of us. Verse 4. And we'll get into giants. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. This verse has caused tons of people to trip up. The word giant in the Hebrew is nephil, and when you take it to the plural, it's a word we kind of are familiar with, nephilim. So there were nephilim on the earth. Um, on this, I left the Bible a little bit because the Bible seems to make this claim and it doesn't make any attempt to prove itself. And frankly, I kind of like that about God. When God says something is and doesn't defend it or give an argument for it, I think it's one of those things where we as Christians, we can believe it or not believe it. Um, but there are a lot of Christians that struggle with this as a myth or something to that effect. The problem with that is there's tons of evidence that there were races, large numbers of human beings on this earth they got to be a lot taller than they are now. If you look at the book of Enoch, which is an extra canonical or outside of the Bible book that's pretty old, they give us a little more detail than Genesis does. And it came to pass that the children of men had multiplied in those days and were born to them beauty and comely daughters. So they had some good-looking young ladies. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and beget us children. And they took to themselves wives, each of those for himself. And they began to go into them and defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments. And they became pregnant and they bare great giants. And there arose much godlessness and they committed fornication and they were led astray and they became corrupt in all their ways. Again, that's not from the Bible. But we have this kind of outside the Bible source that kind of makes this claim too. Most commonly, when we went through public schools, we learned about Greek mythology. And clearly being fantastical, the Greek mythology had no problem at all with giants and gods mating with humans. So we look at a lot of ancient civilizations. In fact, almost all of them have narratives of in the early days when gods would mate with humans. Um, we also have various records. I'm going to get into this, but let me preface it. Every one of these websites, you feel like you're going into the dark basement of that freaky, weird conspiracy theory person, and you're reading this stuff going, I don't know if I can buy this or not. So let me say this. 
I don't struggle with this very much. Like this isn't something that would make or break my faith because I can't verify it and I can't disprove it. So for me, that's a tough thing to get into as even as a researcher and a scientist, if I can't verify it and I can't disprove it, then I don't know if I, there's not much we can do in today's world to get there, but we can dig holes and find bones. And we have. So in ancient pages in 2014, they found in the Philippines, a human skeleton that was 17 feet tall. This is far larger than any. So a lot of people say, well, yeah, giants like David and Goliath. We have gigantism. There's Andre the giant. He was a wrestler on TV. We know these people exist. Most people with gigantism don't grow past much past even eight or nine feet. The bones just don't grow that long. So when we found human-sized bones that actually lead to a 17-foot human, that's crazy. But it could be a hoax. So then you go over to Southeast China, um, and you, they found a 13-foot tall human there. At Turin Awesome near the East Pakistan border, they found a human that was 11 feet tall. The Smithsonian, Brit, Smithsonian in 2017, Bridget Katz reported, Hui Malloy writes that men in the Jagova graveyard would have seemed like giants to the average person 5,000 years ago. So the average human has gotten taller over time. So they're thinking, well, maybe this is relative, like humans were just extra short back then. There's 17 cases of the Smithsonian that have uncovered giant skeletons of over seven feet tall, just in, in North American burial mounds. They've stopped digging up burial mounds today, but throughout history, there's records of them being dug up. Out of those dig-ups, the finding 17 of them, thinking of the probability that that's just gigantism, gigantism happens in about 0.000007% of the human population. That means to find 17 cases, you'd have to dig up about 2.5 million burial mounds to find that many bodies. The other alternative is there were giant people that lived amongst the Native Americans. Giant skeletons have also been found in Mexico uh, at 10 and 12 feet tall with feet that were 18 to 20 inches long. In 1928, Peruvian archeologist Julio Tello does, uh, found a graveyard that contained some of the largest skulls ever found. Some skulls they believed were over 3000 years old and were double the size of normal human skulls. In fact, it was so common that they were finding these bodies in North America that as we settled the continent, it was just a well-known fact that the Native Americans had these bodies there to the point that when Abe Lincoln gave a speech in, in Niagara Falls, this is a quote from his speech, the eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. In other words, we're a people, so even Abe Lincoln was seeing this sort of thing. You go online, you can find pictures and photos of weird looking giants. You can do it, but a lot of people, the critics will say, well, these have been doctored, they're fixed up, but they were doctoring these things as early as Abe Lincoln's day saying they were all over the place. And when you see Peruvian, China, archeologists finding them, it's hard to believe that in all those locations around the world, because I kind of just did a tour of the planet there, it's hard to believe they're all doctoring these things. And it's also really hard to believe that they were all there. So one last thought on giants. There are tons of animal species that when we look at the fossil record, we know they were significantly larger than the animal species we see today. One explanation for that is all species seem to be shrinking. Another explanation for that is that the planet Earth changed at some point. Something cataclysmic changed how long we live, how long we or how old we can get, 
and how large we get developmentally as bodies. Um, however, amongst the entire fossil record, there aren't different kinds of, than, of animals than we have today. So there were big Tyrannosaurus rex that are in Jurassic parks and they ate things, and today we have reptiles too. So it's not that we lost kinds of animals, but we did lose size. And reptiles are the only, one of the only species or kinds that keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger the longer they live. So if a snake lives a long, long time, the snake just keeps getting bigger. So what if animals also had longer lifespans and would go bigger? Then you could deduce that you should have some awfully big reptiles that walk the earth. Okay, are we in the X, we're in the X-Files world now, right? And it's just kind of weird. Either this is all a bunch of hoaxes and cover-ups, or it's not. And that's the moving back from the X-Files and weird conspiracy theories. Either there were giants on the earth and they're not. The Bible says that there were. Faith-wise, it just doesn't bother me that much. I don't have a problem believing that there were. I don't have a problem believing that they found all these bones all over the planet. Um, and for me, it actually affirms my faith that even if one or two of those were hoaxes to try to get people to come see the giant bones, it's hard to believe all of them were hoaxes and that they didn't do that. And if you want to give it even weirder, and this stuff's not verified and there's people that get in there, there's people that believe the Smithsonian has been hiding or losing those bones when they find them. So there's a true Indiana Jones, let's just hide this stuff. Um, so there's whole articles written about the, cons the, the conspiracy of the Smithsonian. I don't really get into that that much. But in those articles, they talk about how some of those skulls had horns. Some of those skulls had double rows of teeth in them. Some of them had super double-sized jawbones that would have looked like orc mouths. Again, it gets wacky, but do go online and have some fun with it because it's a good evening to look at some of the photos and see what's out there. And it makes you wonder a little bit. But we're not done with the X-Files. We'll keep going here. Verse 5. Then the Lord saw that wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. That's about as bad as you get. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I've made them. This is an odd thing. So if you think God is all powerful and all knowing, why did he do this in the first place if he knew this was gonna happen? And the word I'm sorry is a difficult thing and we'll come back to that word. Apparently, the world had gotten so bad that he wanted to destroy the birds too. Like, it's so bad, it's going to get washed over and he's going to start anew. There'll be a new creation moment. And, and we have another one of those promised ahead of us in the future in Revelation, that there'll be a new creation moment. The earth will be purged and it'll start again. So one thought might be, maybe even knowing that this was happening, God wanted to show that he could do it and that he's going to do it again as part of what we, in the middle of those two, need to know that that's possible. But let's go back to the I'm sorry part. Translated, it says he turned or repented. Another way to translate it is he was sorry. Um, but essentially the word nakam, which is the sorry there, the root of that means to breathe strongly by implication to be sorry. In other words, it's a big long sigh. God sighed. And if you've known people that do this, when they're disappointed in things, they just go, <sighs> and that's the kind of thing that, that, that Nakam implies. So reading that again, it would be, 
And the Lord saw there was weakness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And the Lord was sighing that he made man on the earth. And I thought about sighing a little bit. And I, and I think that it's tough because I don't think this means God is like made a mistake. And that's a tough part. I, that's hard for me to get because it would be inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. The other thing here is that we have people trying to describe what God's emotional state was, and God had to communicate that to a human using human words. So it's, how do you explain that using human words when we don't really have a word for it? I think you could do it. Um, Hosea sighs, that word that he used is to sigh over his wife. And remember, Hosea is the prophet whose wife went to be a prostitute instead of staying at home with him. So his sigh wasn't that he didn't love her, it's that he was totally disappointed in what she needed in life and, and what that left him with. Um, and God used that as a metaphor for how we've left Christ and prostituted ourselves to all the stuff in the world. And as dad, there are times when your kids do things and you just have to sigh. It doesn't mean you don't love them or you regret having them, but you just sigh and think, I gotta do something about this. No offense, kiddos. So another way to interpret this is that God took pity on the earth, that he knew he had to do something. He knew that he had to take care of this and clean it up. And again, if the demons were actively trying to destroy the bloodline so that the Messiah couldn't come, God needed to end that. So we see elsewhere in the Bible that those demons are put in chains and they're locked up until the judgment day. Verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. When we go from eight to nine, do you notice how it's like we're starting a new book? And we see this could be, this is probably where um, we see a new writer stepping in and starting a new scroll that would be from the flood on, but that scroll starts with the flood. When Noah finds grace with God, he was a just man, perfect in generations, and he walked with God. That's the exact same description that we saw back when we saw Enoch. He was a guy that walked with God. This is the first use of the word grace in the Bible. And that God is going to save Noah from the flood is his first act of grace. Sounds like it's right outside our door. Um, and verse nine, uh, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, is a phrase that really fits with this idea that the angels were intermarrying with humans. And Noah's line was one that was perfect in his generations. It was the only line that was still pure. So we see a process of salvation here, and this is the first place we see that too. Notice that Noah does things in order. In verse eight, he finds grace. In the eyes of the Lord, in verse 9, he was a just man, and then he's perfect in his generations, and then Noah walks with God. At one level, that little formula is how we walk with God, too. First we find grace, then we act justly, or we try to correct our own behavior and act accordingly, and then God changes us and molds us, and he makes us, He like a potter molds the clay, he makes us... Um, holy in that sense, and that's how we walk with God. So I thought that was a cool thought. Verse 9, Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth filled with violence. This is gonna, There's going to be a bunch of reasons that we get for why the Lord wipes the earth clean. One of them is it was filled with violence. 
We saw in Cain's line that we had people doing polygamy. Uh, we see that the angels and the demons are having, making weird genetic mutations. And here we say that there's also violence going on across the earth. Verse 12, so God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And Noah said, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. And this is the same use of the word flesh, all the, the sinful, nasty flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth and make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and outside with pitch. And now, and this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits and it's height 30 cubits. Of course, if you take that into our language, that means that <laughs> I have a weird typo here. I have 18 inches long. Um, no, a cubit is 18 inches long. It's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall. That's about half the size of an American battleship. It's also about the size of over 500 like freight containers. So if you go onto the docks of a shipping port, the semi-truck thing, it'd be about 500 of those semi-trucks. It was huge. So again, let's be ready to give a defense and understand how we get there. The idea of this giant floating barn is one that people also struggle with. This is a weird thing. How can one person build it? So I have six criticisms of the ark and how, at least for me, they're not things that I wrestle with that much. Criticism number one, this floating barn is just too small. Even as big as it is, you couldn't put every animal with two of every kind in that boat. You've heard this one before? How do you do it? Answer on this one, I, again, I don't have a huge problem with this because it's very specific. Listen to how it says it when we go forward. He wants him to put two of every kind on the boat. He's very specific about that. And later on, the word species gets used too. So we'll get to that. So in other words, the ancient Jews knew the difference between a kind and a species. And they were very clear about it. And they used the words they wanted to use. So two of every kind of animal means, essentially, I only need two snakes. And I only need two dogs because I can breed every kind of dog or every species of dog from a single kind. So we could bring two dogs, and I won't use our dog's name, as long as they are both good to mate, we should be good to go. And there's certain animals where they brought seven of them. Criticism number two. Oh, with the two of every kind, by the way, this is more than enough of size of the boat. In fact, you've got lots of extra room on the boat, even if you brought like giant elephants on board. You'd, most animals would fit in this space pretty easy. And it was three stories, so you'd easily be able to fit those animals. You'd have leftover room, which will fill it with Criticism number two, what did the animals eat? Because they were on the boat for almost a year. That's a ton of food. Well, if you're not filling up the boat, there's actually enough room on this boat for enough food for those animals to eat. Further, God's also very, very specific on that, that there's certain animals that get brought on board that are for eating. So chickens make eggs, and you can eat their eggs for as long as you give them straw and hay, and they keep producing them. So that idea of food isn't one I necessarily struggle with because they had plenty of room on the boat and the Bible later on will also talk about how Noah was supposed to fill the boat with food. In fact, he didn't fill the boat with the animals. God brought the animals. Noah's job was to build the boat and fill it with food. Uh, criticism number three, a wooden boat couldn't survive that long. 
And I don't understand this criticism. I found it, and I'm like, yeah, but we have wooden boats today. The point of the wooden boat is, I mean, I don't even understand why that's a criticism, so I won't get too far. But the problem was they used the word gopher wood in verse 14. It's the only place in the Bible where we see that particular word, and there's no such thing as gopher wood on the planet Earth today. So the problem is really with this gopher wood kind of thing. Another interpretation of the word gopher or kofer is actually a squared wood or a planed wood. So build a boat out of planed wood, make it smooth. Um, another way people have handled that is that kofer, uh, the word, the, our letters G and K in the Hebrew look really similar. <clears throat> and it's a one letter difference, switch the G to the K to not be kofer wood, but to be kofer wood. And kofer wood would mean pitched wood or pine. So build a boat out of wood that you can use pitch. And later in the, at the end of verse 14, they actually use the word pitch there. You see that? So it would be make yourself an ark of pitched wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch, um, which would make a lot of sense. But it, you'd also then have to accept that there was a one-letter inerrancy in the Bible that we have today. So you'd have to wrestle with that. Here's another thing. Uh, the word kafar is also the exact same word for atonement, which spiritually speaking, um, build a wood out of atonement and make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with atonement. And the ark can be symbolic of how God, we are protected by our atonement. I thought that was interesting, so I threw it in there. Uh, the word kafar gets used here, and it gets used again in Leviticus 17.11. This is what gives rise to that atonement word. And then it gets used another 101 times throughout the 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 entirety of the Bible. In every one of those 102 occasions, it, that word is, means atonement, to atone for our sins or to give it. This is the only place where it, it seems to be talking more about a boat. Criticism number four, my favorite. Where did they put the poop? And how did they possibly deal with all the feces that would be created by these animals for a year? Again, I don't struggle with this one because if anyone's ever worked on a farm, you don't leave the poop in the stalls. The work of Noah's family for a year would be to get up every morning, feed the animals, grab a pitchfork, and pull the poop out of the stalls. Where do they put it? They're on a boat. You throw it overboard. And hopefully don't worry about polluting the ocean. So I've never really... But if they were sealed inside... So it's an odd kind of criticism to me. Criticism number five. How did they have time to build this boat? Again... There's no mention of how long it takes. God says, there is a timing thing where he says, I'm going to start the flood in seven days. We're coming up on that. But there's actually no description of how long it took to build the boat. And at the point when the flood hit, Noah was about 500 years old. So could a single guy over the course of 400, say, years, give him 100 years to be a juvenile, let's say he had five, 400 years to build a boat. If you're going with what the Bible says, it's not contradictory in and of itself. Six criticism. <clears throat> Noah didn't have the talent to build such a boat because he was not a boater. And we don't know what Noah's career was ahead of this, um, but it was pretty clear from what the biblical Bibles already claimed in the genealogies, they said, the people who did bronze. So we know they had high levels of tech. And we also have the Sumerian records that we've already talked about that show that. And it doesn't say that Noah didn't have help. It only says that Noah and his three sons' families got on the ark. It doesn't mean that as a wealthy landowner, 
that Noah couldn't have hired hundreds of people to help him build this ark. The Bible's silent on that. Um, therefore, it's not necessarily a criticism that I would wrestle with because if it takes more people to build the boat, then Noah could have hired more people to build the boat. It just means they didn't get on the boat and seal themselves inside along with Noah because that would just be weird, especially if you didn't believe there was a flood coming. So where is the boat? Again, we get into kookiness. If you get online, there are many theories of where Noah's Ark is on the planet Earth. And most of them surround Mount Ararat in Turkey, where there have been explorers that have found and brought wood down from the top of the mountain from a large, many-chambered structure that's on top of Mount Ararat. Problem with this is the Turkish government does not feel that it's Noah's Ark. They have not applied for it to be a national historic site, registered site, or anything like that. <clears throat> There's some photographs that people have done from the air, but it's all under ice, so it's really hard to tell. It's clearly something square, but we have monasteries on the top of the Himalaya mountains too, and nobody seems to think that that's a miracle. People carry things up mountains and build stuff. We do it all the time. So we don't know what's on top of Mount Ararat. We don't get that. Uh, we do see that governments all the time shut down these kind of explorations. That's what we know. Uh, for instance, Syria shut down any more excavation of the Elba tablets. And there's like thousands of these tablets that they found. They feel like they found an ancient throne room library. Um, and those tablets are dated around 2300 BC. And a ton of them confirm and reference Jewish towns as part of the trade networks. They're mostly commerce tablets. Um, and those were dug up in 1975, but Syria, Syria just stopped doing it because they're finding evidence that Abraham did own land and that would support a Jewish claim to the Holy Land in 2300 BC, so they stopped doing it. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, they have electric fences and armed guards surrounding Jabal al-Laws, which is a potential site of Mount Sinai. And they just don't want people there. They don't want the tourism. They don't want any interest in that because they don't necessarily want those narratives, even though Moses is in Islamic traditions too. But it's just the government saying, this is we don't want people coming here as tourists climbing up this mountain. It's in an odd spot. So there's tons of debate. Let's take the debate and just put it on the shelf for now, and we'll come back to my thoughts on debate in a little bit. For now, verse 16. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above. I like that. And set a door, in other words, it's a very small window on the top of this big, huge boat. And set the door of the ark and its side, and you shall make with it a lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing the floodwaters in the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, which is, in the bre which is the breath of life, and everything is on the earth shall die. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you br shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, and every creeping thing on the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. Again, verse 20 to me is God knew what he was saying and he knew how to describe what he was talking about to eliminate a lot of these debate things. So when Jesus responds to people that go, aha, aha, we gotcha, he generally says, surely you haven't actually read the Bible because the Bible actually says this. And when you talk to people about Noah, a lot of times they've listened to stuff in the world and they actually haven't read it for themselves. The Bible never claims that every animal went on the ark. It says two of every kind went on the ark. 
That's thousands of species that would not have been on the ark. And the fossil record shows the same thing. There are thousands of species that have gone extinct that we don't have on the planet today. Verse 21, and you shall take for yourself of all food that's eaten and you shall gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and them. And this is Noah's primary work for however many years it took him to build it. He's supposed to gather food and store it up and get it in there. To do that, he must have been, Noah must have had extreme wealth or lots of farmland and multiple years to farm it and do it. So Noah would have been somebody that had some resources in order to do this and make this happen. Unlike the movie, he did not have giant earth elementals helping him build the ark. But that is, for a non-believer, that's one of the things they'll do to say, in order for this story to work, to make something that big, you'd need giant earth elementals to handle that lumber. So they create a movie that has so much fantasy wrapped into it that it makes it so it's hard to believe the Bible. Yet they don't struggle with the idea that the pyramids were built by humans. And those are much larger, much more difficult to explain construction techniques being used. Verse 20, and they have space aliens that have built it. it dep- you know what I mean? So that their answer to that is, well, space aliens helped us build the pyramids, which is as kooky as anything else. 22, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, and so he did. This is the end of chapter 6, but I'm going to keep rolling because it's not the end of chapter 7, and the story keeps going through the next three chapters. I do want to stop on 22 and say what a cool character that he walked with God, so God's still talking and walking just like he did with Adam. Noah doesn't have to pray. He just talks with God because God's hanging out with him. That had to be pretty cool, and it says a lot about who Noah was. Notice that with Noah, unlike tons of other characters we're going to see in the Old Testament, Noah just obeys. God tells him to do something, and he just does it. That's super tough to do, and that's for me at least, that's the kind of guy I want to be. And I think that his faith is amazing. Hebrew 11 kind of mentions Noah in the the Hall of Fame of Faith. And one of the things it says is that, or one of the things that for me stands out about that is that the faith that Noah had was that he was building an ark for a global catastrophe that involved rain, which according to Genesis had not happened yet. So he's preparing for a flood and they didn't even know what rain was. And it had to be something where he totally believed it. Of course, if he's walking with God, And God says, I'm going to flood the earth. I don't know how much faith you need for that, but I don't want to critique Paul right now. But um, it's just one of those thoughts that to be like Noah and to be a man of righteousness is to walk with God and to do it humbly and do it in such a way that you just obey God and what he does. Genesis 7 verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Steph pointed out to me, um, isn't it cool that God says come into the ark, which location-wise means God's already in the ark. And he says come into the ark. He doesn't say go into the ark. He says come in, which means God's already gone ahead of Noah, and he's already waiting for Noah in this next part of the journey. I've seen that you're righteous before me in this generation. Ultimately, this is the, what God says of Noah is what we want God to say of us when we die too. That when he looks at our life, even if we're construction people and building boats, that he can say, you were righteous before me. In in my terms, I remember those righteous things you did. Verse two, you shall take with you seven of each clean animal. We don't have the law yet. There's no Leviticus. So what is a clean animal without the law? And ultimately, I think he let Noah decide that or he had already talked to Noah 
or they just didn't write down what was clean and unclean until we get to the Moses with the law. You shall take with you seven of every clean animal, a male and his female, two of each animals that are unclean, a male and his female, and seven of each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep, and here we see the word, the species alive on the face of all the earth. In other words, God must have really loved the birds because he decides, I want you to keep multiple bird species alive, not just kinds. Verse four, for after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I've made. And Noah did to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were here on the earth. I think it's interesting that he gives for seven more days, I'll cause it to rain. So God actually tells Noah when it's going to rain seven days ahead of time. And I think that's kind of cool because we know that right around this time, it's likely that Methuselah died. So Noah would have had time to bury his grandfather, put his affairs in order, and he would have had seven days to get pe- convince people to come on the ark with him. He would have had far more kids at age 600 than the three families that came on board with him. So he would have had kids that didn't come on the ark with him, which is kind of tragic. Um, All that grows up is more than just animals dying on the earth, and we have lots of plant species that are only found in our fossil record. Um, And uh, he's going to purge the earth and wipe it out. Um, So verse 7, So Noah with his sons, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives went into the ark, because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of anything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, and in the second month, the 17th day of the month, and on that day all the fountains of the deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. First of all, when I read things like the 500th year, second month, 17th day, this is not a mythological account. When we read a lot of the flood, the Epic of Gilgamesh, when we read the Indian flood accounts, when we read the Chinese flood accounts, they read like mythos. This does not. This reads like they're trying to tell us history. This is the day that it happened, and they're documenting that, which leads to the internal consistency that at least we know the writers of this thought they were telling us the absolute truth. That's the claim that they're making. So to say the Bible, this is all just mythos, you really have to reconcile that because the Bible doesn't write itself as mythos. If I said the Epic of Gilgamesh is mythos, I'd be agreeing with its writer because its writer thought that they were telling a kind of myth too. If I look at Native American flood stories where giant turtles save people, they were writing a myth and they knew they were writing a myth. These writers don't appear to be writing a myth or even think that they're writing a myth. They're actually giving us exact days when things happen. Um, We have a little more information about where the waters come from. So one of the criticisms, I already talked about criticisms of the ark. One of the criticisms of the flood is where did all the water come from? And how does that work out? And how, Sean, do you reconcile that in your head? How do you make sense of this? We get some hints here in verse 11. The great deep was broken up. So we know that there's some sort of tectonic 
or physical volcanic activity. Something's happening under the deep where things are breaking up. We know that even one volcano can change temperature in areas thousands of miles away from it because of the ash it puts into the air. But if you have more than one volcano cracking at the same time, you could have massive global climate change pretty quick. We also see that the windows of heaven were open. We know from Genesis 1 that those heavenly oceans were full and that there was a lot of water in the sky at the time. So we, we see here that there's some sort of massive geopolitical impact. There's no claim of a miracle here. It just says that it happened. It doesn't say that God did it. It just say that it happened. The timing is what's providence because God knew when it would happen. Almost like God knew when the earth would do what it's going to do. So to break up means we have some sort of volcanic activity that's big enough to send a lot of water into the air. And there would have been underwater sources because remember there was no rain. We just had rivers that were fed by um, underwater kind of, uh, what do you call that? Fountain? Stream? Spring. Underwater springs fed these rivers. Those are some pretty big springs. So if you have rivers being fed like that, we have these this massive amount of water under the earth. Uh, there's other theories on this too, like the Strait of Gibraltar didn't, you, like the Mediterranean Sea didn't used to be there. That used to be continuous land. And then something cracked and then the Atlantic Ocean flooded into the Mediterranean. And therefore there's these stories of floods that are in there. There's other theories around a meteor strike that hit in the Gulf of Mexico. And that meteor strike would have sent a tidal wave across the planet Earth and it would have messed up our climate for tons of time. Um, there's tons of this kind of stuff, which is all conjecture and it's all theoretical. The water is above the fir firmament then, anything above the Earth. Remember that would have included glacial ice, lakes, oceans, and even the heavens that were in the skies that seem to protect or give more cover than they do now. Glacial ice alone, we have record of glaciers that didn't used to just be on the North and South Pole. In fact, we know that glaciers covered most of Minnesota and even Chicago at one point in history, what most um, his, geo historians call the ice age. And they don't know how many ice ages there were. The Bible would argue that that glacial ice would have, of course, something warmed up on the earth and it could have melted pretty quick. So there's lots of theories. The Bible doesn't explain how it happened. It just says that it does. But we know that there's plenty of water on this planet um, in glaciers, in untapped oceans, in what could have been in the atmosphere at one point that's no longer in the atmosphere. Um, for whatever reason, uh, there's plenty of water on the planet Earth today to where it could cover. The other piece that it doesn't explain is, uh, well, we'll get to that here in a sec. Verse 13, on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind. I love how cattle gets its own place in these lists. Like it's a really special animal to God. Um, and I think that's why people love cows. Every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And we had burgers tonight. It, it was just a good fit. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, every bird after its kind, and every bird of every sort. Fish are not included. They can swim. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh, which is in the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. So he is protected not by his own power, but by God's power. That door on the side would have had to have been sealed properly, uh, which is another indication that the Lord was actually physically there, or somehow he miraculously sealed it up and, and, and that sort of thing. I love the idea that God seals us. 
I love the idea that we're going to have a seal put on our heads that marks us as God's property at some point, that we are his and he um, redeems and protects his own. And we see this image here of God in an act of love, caring for and protecting Noah through what's going to be a global cataclysm. Imagine if like the earth was going to take a big meteor shower like Armageddon and there was going to be this massive thing or there was nuclear war on the planet and everyone was going to die, that God could single out his people and say, well, to Methuselah and Enoch, I'm going to take you away from here before all this happens, right? And then he could even protect a small remnant and say, I'm going to just protect you through all of this stuff. (coughs) And in fact, that's exactly what he's promising to do at the end of times. He will rapture or take away a certain population of people that he that are his, and there will be a remnant that endures the, the cataclysm and God will protect them in love. <coughs> Grant, can you get me my cherry coke, please? <coughs> um, can you read 17 and through 20? Uh, my version's different, is that okay? That's okay. Okay. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Thank you, sir. So here we see that the mountains were covered. This is another area that's problematic for those that don't want to believe the word. Uh, If you take the highest mountains on earth, they are thousands of feet high. And to cover them would require more liquid that's actually on the planet right now. So they say, aha, aha, there's not enough H2O on the planet Earth to cover Mount Everest. And not just cover it, but cover it with cubits to spare, right? The problem with that is we know even from today that geographers track that the Himalaya mountains are actually getting higher by one foot per year, which isn't much. It's a minuscule amount of growth. But mountains on the planet Earth are mountains because they have... uh, geological reasons for that upheaval. There's plates crashing together causing them to rise, or there's volcanic volcanic activity spewing lava up, again, making them rise. So in every spot on Earth where there's mountains, those mountains are going up today. They're not going down. The only spot where mountains go down is where there's no tectonic activity. So you get like the Appalachians, right, where the wind and erosion wear them out. But on mountains where there's sharp peaks, which are our tallest ones, they're actually still rising. Uh, And they have been rising so fast that typical erosion has not smoothed them over. Those sharp edges imply that they rose quickly, not slowly over time, inches at a time. So if that's the case, and you go backwards, even 10,000 years, and they're rising by a foot a year, even using the current growth rate, those mountains would really only be about two, 3,000 feet high. Even the tallest peaks might have only been 5,000 feet high at their current growth rate. Again, I don't struggle with the mountains being covered. There's plenty of, you shrink the mountains from today's status and even use the same growth rate, but that implies that they're growing at the same rate and they have forever, which we know that volcanoes erupt and the way the earth moves and changes, it doesn't, things don't happen at the same rate. They do change and we've seen lots of that. 
The other thing here is the Bible is claiming a worldwide flood. The word mabul, flood, is not the, the same word as the Jewish word yahor, which is also flood, but a normal flood from lots of rain. A mabul is like a massive flood, like a mabul flood. And then there's yahor, which is a normal flood that goes away and that sort of, like you have flooding in your house. Um, even in the Greek, Jesus uses the term cataclysmos. He doesn't use the normal word for flood. He uses a different word when he speaks, when it's in the Greek too in the New Testament. This is a singularly unique event according to what the Bible claims. The Bible actually claims everything was covered with water. And that's tough for Christians that say, oh, it was a regional flood or it was a partial flood um, because that's not, they have to reconcile them that they're claiming the Bible is not making the claim that it's making. And that's a tough thing. And there are lots of Christians, people I love, brothers and sisters that believe the flood is some sort of regional thing, but that's not the claim the Bible makes. Other things that lend to that is that Almost every, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'll quote National Geographic, all ancient civilizations have references to a great flood. It is a common narrative in all ancient civilizations. They have differences on how they, what the flood was, why it happened, um, if there were people that survived it or not. Um, they differ on names, but later when we get to the Tower of Babel, the Bible even explains why there's different languages being used for these things. But they all agree that there was a cataclysm. The earth was flooded with water at one point. Again, our job's to give a defense of what we believe. So I'm not trying to argue the flood. I'm just trying to say this is, when I run into these people and they get into this, I'm often not impressed by their arguments because there seems to be pretty simple explanations that, at least for me, they work, but they may not work for you, which is why I'm really excited about what you have to say when we get done tonight. Geological record goes into this idea of, of the flood too. I'm going to give you just seven really quick things about the geological record that for me, they kind of do it. Like I just don't struggle with this stuff. Number one, almost all rock on earth is in layers. Layers either happen over millions of bajillions of years with leaves falling and then pressure building and you get layers and that's how rocks come in layers or massive liquid movement that washes back and forth and moves silk and debris with it. In which case you wouldn't need millions of gazillions of years because water goes back and forth every minute just stand by any seashore and watch the waves come in and if those waves continue to bring soil and 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 whatever those layers would happen pretty quick all you need at that point is pressure and a few bazillion cubic miles of water would provide that pressure very easily and the bottom of the ocean floor is where a lot of rock is still pressed and made in addition inside of almost all rock on earth we can find fossils so somehow or another, animals got to be part of that, which does not imply leaves falling and then you have slow bajillion years. It implies that something covered those animals very quickly. Um, so for me, that's another piece. Also, fossils are ubiquitous. They're all over the planet, everywhere. And the problem with that for me is that bones are biodegradable. Like if I died in the forest, my bones would be gone in a year. So the fact that we have fossils all over the planet, everywhere, that's hard to explain fossils by dinosaurs getting caught in tar pits. Remember that in elementary school? They'd have these, di these poor dinosaurs going, oh, in these tar pits. And they're like, oh, that's how we got fossils. They all fell into a tar pit all over the earth. And I was scarred by that. I felt really sorry for those little furry elephants and getting caught in tar pits. It made me really upset when I was a kid. But it's also ridiculous. And it's something that's not hard to think. Well, wait, did all of these animals get caught in tar pits? Or... 
get trapped by a quick freeze like Mr. Freeze came out with his gun and froze all of them? Was it like this insty-freeze on the planet Earth? A flood is a much more plausible explanation for how we get fossils. Glaciers, we know they covered the Earth. I already made that point. But I have little pictures for myself, see? Um, the other piece is we know the glaciers covered most of the northern part of the continent. What we don't know is because the southern part of the continent just has tips of South America and Africa, is that an equal glacier would have probably rose over the South Pole that would have come equally down the latitude as the North Pole one did. So there's no reason to believe that, that it wouldn't match or somehow do it because today we have glaciers on both sides. Mountains rising, oceanic animal remains are found on almost every major mountain range across the earth. There are whale bones on top of mountains that people can't seem to explain. One explanation is people would kill a whale and bring its bones to the top of a mountain. There is no major religion in the world except for maybe the Ninevites that would take animals from the ocean and bring them up to the top of their mountains. Um, so, but somehow or another, those bones got up there. Um, the other thing for me that's amazing is I look at like the Grand Canyon. I see across the planet massive washouts that I used to make them in my sandbox. You can build up a thing of like, like make a puddle by building up the dirt and then you break a side of the dam and it just washes out. And when it happens, it carries all the sand with us. The only thing that could really make those kinds of washouts all over the earth would be oceans of water flooding off of North America when the lands would st started to rise or something happened. Um, and you st see that today, these river valleys like the St. Croix right over here where the river is this big and the valley is this big. And a washout explains that fairly easily. A slow moving carving river over time, we just don't have those patterns that we can evidence today. But we still make that claim. Well, given enough time, that water could do that kind of damage to the land. And it's kind of like, well, that would have been a really wide river then because it seems like it, the cutaways are pretty there. Also, erosion hasn't had a chance to do its business on those things either. They're sharp, clear lines. Last but not least, and this is the one that gets it for me. I did save this one to last. There's clear evidence that nobody challenges, secular or, or believers, that we have extinct species all over the planet. Thousands of extinct species that once walked this planet don't walk it anymore. Every natural history museum has bones of these species. It's, uh, it's totally uncontested. And if you just think in terms of logic, all evidence on Earth is that we are losing species over time. We've got zero evidence of brand new species popping up out of nowhere. So if you just take that logic and say, well, actually, we had more species and now we have less, there's no reason to think that that's not an ongoing thing, that ultimately our job as stewards of the Earth, we suck because humans have been killing animal species forever and we're not very good at it. And I think it's largely, and this is where I don't agree that environmentalism is somehow a conservative or liberal thing, it should be a Christian thing. Like, we are told to care for this earth, and as sucky as humans have been at doing that, our job as believers is to try to keep those animals alive and be good stewards and be gardeners and be cultivating and to be doing those kinds of things is part of what we're supposed to do. The problem is most humans don't consider themselves God followers. So they do things that are horrible and destroy territory and land and all that. And I don't, I've had people say that makes me a really liberal person. I don't think it does at all. It just makes me a Bible reader. Like, this is what we're supposed to do. It's a bad thing that all these animals had to die. It's not a good thing. 
Verse 21, and all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts of every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life and all that was on dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man, cattle, creeping thing, bird of the air, and they were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Again, the Bible says it right there. You could try to explain how fossils got buried in layers of rock, how plants like trees got petrified in layers of rock. You could try to come up with all sorts of science fiction as to why that happened. Or you could take the Bible at its word, in which case there's a very naturalistic explanation for how that happened. Animals know how to escape death, in which in case we wanted to make exceptions, the Bible asks you to just believe it. Oh, that animal's escaping death. My thought was that is like, if it was a partial flood, animals know how to move. So do humans. Like, we don't just stand there and drown, unless it's kind of a full earth covering kind of thing. <clears throat> I think it's interesting, verses 21 through 23. You notice there's kind of a repetition here. I don't think that's just so little Jewish kids can memorize better. I actually think God's making a scientific claim here. He's making a claim, he's defined the terms, and he's said, here's what's happened, and then he says again, this is actually what happened. So, again, myths don't do this. They don't repeat themselves. They don't make claims and then remake them again to say this is what happened and then in fact this is what happened. Um, it's written like a scientific claim. God is very direct on points with this and he doesn't leave a lot of room to contest the claim that there was a worldwide flood. Verse 24, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 years, or 150 days. Oops. A year before they could leave the ark, they'd be sitting in that ark for a long time. So we'll wrap up with chapter seven here with a few thoughts. There's no, I'm, I remember I said we'd put a pin in the debate thing and come back to it. I think that for some people, and I'm just saying this as a 40 year old, I don't know, in my next 40 years, maybe I'll change my mind on this. I think for some people, there's no amount of evidence that convinces them that something's true or not. For most people on the earth, they believe what they already believe. And to change someone's mind, and I think this is important for Christians, so I'm going to soapbox on this a little bit. We don't change people's minds by arguing with them. That's not our tool. There's nowhere in the Bible that says, go argue with people. Go forth and argue with people. So when you run into people that want to argue, you're running into a personality type that's extremely not righteous, right? I'll give you three examples. All three in the Psalms. Psalm 35, 21. Psalm 40, 15, and Psalm 70, verse 3. In all three of these, there's a reference to a kind of person that's the aha, aha person. I love these, and we get to Psalms to talk about them too. You've met these people. Verse, or Psalms 35, 21, yea, they opened their mouth wide against me, and they said, aha, aha, our eye has seen it. We saw this happen, right? Aha, aha, we got you. I like the aha, aha, it's so honest. Psalm 40, 15, let them be desolate for a reward for their shame is because they say unto me, aha, aha. Verse Psalm 70, verse three, let them be turned back for a reward of their shame that say, aha, aha. There's these people that try to get other people with their claims. And there's a lot of these people in the church right now. Historically, the church has not done this. 
But in American Christianity, we do it all the time. We try to get people with our great points. So I've gone through a lot of points today of things that for me make it plausible that there was a flood, make it plausible that there were giants on the earth. These aren't things I'm going to lose my faith over. Like they're not that big of a deal to me. I never enter into a conversation trying to throw that stuff down with people that aren't willingly here to read the word because it never bears fruit. When you go people and tell them they're wrong, they just get mad at you. When you go to people and love them in a way that they can't understand, it changes something about who they are. And they think, I want to do it. The Bible says that they'll know that we are Christians by our love. And our most powerful tool for compelling and convincing people, even of things like the flood, is not to argue with them, but to love them. And say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you get closer to Jesus. We can, God can refine our beliefs when we study his word. But if people aren't even ready to study the word or they're not reading it and they just do aha, aha, look at it, I found a verse that I can't, you know. I, I remember one guy that, well, I'll tell that story when we get to the New Testament. I'm going to read 1 Peter 3.15 again. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. In addition to love, we have hope. Most people love this verse. Always be ready to defend your faith but they forget to read the end of the sentence. The hope that is in you, comma, with meekness and fear. And that idea of giving a defense to everyone who asks you eliminates a ton of arguments. If they're not asking you, shut up. It's not your job just to have love and hope for them. And don't get into it with them because it's not going to bear fruit in their souls. And this is the case when we go home to family that want to argue about the faith, when we go home to different kinds of Christians that want to argue how many angels dance on the head of a pin, how many giants were there in the earth, did they have horns or didn't they? Do you believe the accounts of the, the ark and that they could move big pieces of lumber all by themselves? No, I believe God can do these things. I don't think people walk on water. I think God helped someone walk on water. I don't think that animals actually talk today but I think God could enable them to. They have vocal cords. So there's these odd kinds of things, but the aha, aha people, and my hope is to, even if you heard things that for me work on these things, I don't think these are things to go out and use as weapons. So we become aha, aha people. I've got you, there was a flood, look at this. There were layers of rock and that kind of thing. And the Christian church right now, there's a whole wing of the church getting into that kind of apologetic where we feel like we need to argue but I've never seen somebody come to faith because they lost an argument. They come to faith because they were loved. In that note, God defends and fights his own battles. We're, our job's to get sanctified, to walk with God. Our job's not to fight these battles. We're to give a defense. That verse doesn't talk about an offense. Our offense is non-existent. People want to whack us. Our job's to turn the other cheek. And that's super hard for Christians to handle, especially when Christians are in power in a culture. Our job's to not worry about status, power, expertise. If we're to give our defense to everyone who asks, that means boldness. It doesn't matter who's asking, you tell them to their face. Just like John the Baptist told Herod that he was having a bad relationship with his with lady, and he got his head cut off for it. Just like Jesus said, it's as you say, and he got crucified for it. Doesn't matter when we are asked, it's often not in a situation where we're, we're in control. It's often in a situation where we're intimidated, we're scared 
of losing our jobs, of having somebody get in our face about this, means we might not get the job. Uh, but our job is to be bold and let God take care of it. I hope tonight, this is, a, this is a weird chapter, I hope tonight what I've done is modeled the idea of just saying, this is what works for me. I'm, this satisfies me, I'm there. And I think that meets that meekness and fear a little bit. I'm terrified to talk about this stuff with you. Like it's been a huge journey for me going, how am I going to talk about giants on the planet Earth, even with Christians? This is a weird conversation to have. And I don't dwell on it a lot. But I hope I've modeled the idea that you still can stand on God's word and trust that it's going to be there. That meekness and fear part should be something that we're super humbled by. If we do have to get into discussions about our faith around these kinds of things, our goal is to be so terrified that we're going to lose that person's heart that we're cautious around how we communicate and what we say to people. And that meekness is, for me, this is what works for me. I don't struggle with this. And I think that kind of language works. So I, get, I have a few quotes that, for apologetics that I think are work around meekness and fear. I have reason for my hope in Christ. And that's, I'm just saying these are things you can say. There's a ton that I don't know. There's a meekness to that, right? There's lots that I don't know. I don't know how Noah got the lumber three stories up in the air. That's a tough discussion to have. But I don't know, and the Bible doesn't say. Is that a deal breaker, or is that something that you need to know in order to come to faith? Right? So how did, you know, whale bones get on top of mountains? Is that a deal breaker or is that, can we, can we move on? Is that a question I can wait to ask in heaven? This is what works for me. After seeing God's hand in my life, I have less trouble agreeing that what he says is true. In other words, I don't need to go to the Bible to know there's a God. I can talk to God and I see results. I can feel his holy presence in my life. So I don't necessarily need to get past a flood in order to come to faith. I accept the flood because I have faith. And I'm not a scientist. Actually, I am a scientist. But I can say I'm not a hydrogeothermal scientist. So there's certain things that we don't know. But even those scientists weren't there 10, 12,000 years ago. So they're not doing science. They're doing theory just like I am. Fear. I'm hesitant to get into an argument because I don't know why you're asking me the question. Are you really seeking God or are you trying to be an aha, aha person? Because I don't want to argue about that sort of thing. Taking a stand for me drives other, uh, taking a stand drives folks to sit you down. When you take a stand on something, everyone that doesn't agree with you wants to take you down a notch. You should have fear. So because you're going to get into it or get into that sort of thing, there will be people that want to just knock you down a couple notches. And that's true anytime you take those kinds of stands. Defending my faith to everyone is a clear command in the Bible, but it's not necessarily my desire. I don't want to get into it with all these people. I'm, there's some fear there that should be healthy, godly fear. There might be others at talking about a subject than you are, which is a healthy fear. Maybe you should talk to someone who knows more about this than I do, right? And that's, a, I think, a good thing to say to people. Like, because this isn't a stumbling block for me, I haven't researched it. Can I have a few days to look into it because I'm not a professional apologist, right? I'll do my best, but my best may not satisfy you. But I'll try. Adam and Eve got punished for adding to what the Bible says and from taking away from his word. I don't want to get punished for doing that too. One temptation as Christians is to believe in things like giant claims. It's the Christians that jump on those going, see, that's evidence of giants. 
but then we lend ourselves to pseudoscience and that doesn't that mistruth doesn't help us proclaim the truth and so there should be some real skepticism around stuff like this so we don't get swept into hoaxes and then everybody says see look at all the dumb christians that bought into the the newest hoax in fact the aha aha people could even come up with giant bones just to see how many christians would jump on board with it without evidence and claim so for us there should be some fear around a lot of these kinds of things which i think is healthy that said if this passage doesn't stumble someone there's nothing else in the bible that i think really gets as weird as this chapter so most of the miracles in the bible aren't hard to get past if you buy that there's a god in the universe and that he's capable of doing these things and that what he says is true so with that said, let's say a word of prayer, and then we can, I'd love to hear what you all think. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather and read your word, um, and we can do it uh, without fear. We can pursue and study the words of God, because we want wisdom, Lord. And like with the Bereans that Paul mentioned, they sought out, in the word of God, they sought out truths for themselves. Lord, that's what we want to do, too. We want to seek out your truth. Um, even in difficult passages, Lord. And we just think that it's so fun. And what a joy to hear and see lots of evidence, Lord, that supports what you say is true in the first place. But ultimately, Lord, our faith is such that we don't need that evidence, that we trust you, we believe you, and we believe your word is true, every letter and every dot of it. So, Lord, we just thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the, the life that it gives us, Lord. And we thank you that it can change our hearts I pray that the word sticks in our head all week and that we are fascinated with giants on the earth. We are um, Google searching flood evidence and we are digging into some of these subjects because they just tickle our intellect and they make us curious and they make us discoverers. But Lord, help us to know the truth of these passages. You don't try to defend them, Lord. Your point is that you saved Noah. And Lord, we want to be saved too. Spare us the the pain and agony of death, Lord, by taking us away and, and bringing us to heaven to be with you and giving us eternal life. Lord, we know that you sealed with love and protected Noah from the cataclysm of the earth. And Lord, we'd like to be protected too. Protect us from anxiety and stress in our life this week. The flood of work that can come over us, Lord, that all of this can be a metaphor for your love and what you do to protect your servants. So Lord, help us to do that, to joyfully move forward with hope and cheer and love for one another, Lord, that we can be above those things that this world has to offer us. And we can take joy despite the ang- the stress and the, the anxiety that things like money and schoolwork and all that brings into our life. Help us to be more than conquerors. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, Post it on your social media.